In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Amen. My Lord and my God, I firmly believe that you are here, that you see me, that you hear me. I adore you with profound reverence. I ask your pardon for my sins and the grace to make this time of prayer fruitful. My Immaculate Mother, St. Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me. If you open the, the Bible and you come to the beginning of the book of Genesis, you read the story of creation and it ends with the pinnacle, which is the creation of man. Adam and Eve were created. And it's clear that the whole world was created for the sake of man and that he had to work in the garden and take care of this beautiful creation. But then, very shortly after the creation account and the creation of man, there's a kind of earthquake in the history of humanity, a watershed moment that has, that has shaped our species over, the th over thousands, if not millions of years since then. That watershed moment affected all of humanity. It has affected you and me, those born then and those still not born. It's as though the very structure of our DNA was affected. We talk a lot about important events in history. Many people are saying that this pandemic has, has been a watershed moment in history. It's a turning point in history. Everything will be different from now on. But this is the most you know, dramatic changing point in history. And it is recounted in chapter 3 of Genesis. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the trees that it, the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate, ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both were, of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. 
So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Of course, the Bible uses figurative language, it's not scientific language, but that right there, I'm sure you've seen it represented, I'm sure you've seen drawings and paintings of this scene, that right there is a primeval event, primordial. It's placed there at the very beginning of the history of man, and it is like a source that would poison the entire river of humanity from then on. All the evils of the world find their origin right there in that moment in original sin, including the evil of death itself. Because man was made for happiness, but Adam abused that freedom, and we have now inherited that. And all subsequent sin of any kind is ultimately in one form or another, a disobedience toward God, and even more so, a lack of trust in His goodness. That's how the Catechism of the Catholic Church defines sin. Disobedience towards God and a lack of trust in His goodness. God is good, and He wants our goodness. But it's as though... It's as though our DNA has been affected. Some said that, that that event damaged humans to the extent of even eliminating the image of God in them. Even Augustine thought this at first. And that's why he became part of a sect called the Manichaeans, who really thought that human nature was absolutely corrupted, and there was not even the image of God in the human person. But then... His struggle with the Pelagians, his other, his other sort of theological errors, he came to sustain that, the, that the, the image of God does remain substantially present in the human spirit with or without sin, even though man remains wounded. And we know, of course, this moment the moment of original sin also led, led to disharmony between men and women. And because we know uh, afterwards Adam blames Eve and Eve blames the serpent and everything is upside down. There's, there's always this blame game going on. And then after we see that Adam hides and God says, where are you? Where are you? It's interesting that that, from chapter 3, verse 9, this is the first question that God asks Adam after he said, Where are you? That's the first question made in the entire Bible. Where are you? In fact, Adam was hiding from God. Of course, God knew, obviously, where Adam was, but he asks him, Where are you? Why did he ask him that if he knew? Because he wants Adam to open himself to him and to enter into a relationship with him. A real filial relationship. Not something distant. Not something far off. He wants to heal that broken image. That image is still in Adam. He wants to kind of like 
put the mirror together that is cracked and broken. Where are you? Where are you? This is the first question in some ways that God asks us too when we pray, when we examine ourselves. Last night, before going to bed, we spent a few minutes and we did an examination of conscience. We were quiet, we were praying. And in some, say, in some ways, we could say that every time we make an examination of conscience, in some way God is asking us that same question He asked Adam. Where are you? It's a searching question. He's asking you for an examination of conscience. Maybe, maybe we think we can't see God, that He has not made Himself evident and of course, God is not evident in the sense that we can't physically see Him. You know, He's not somebody with a long beard or something like that. But, but let us not hide from Him as Adam was doing. Let us not put Him out of our thoughts. All that you do has to be done in His presence. He has a plan for you. He is watching you. He is watching you with a gaze of love. It's not a menacing gaze. It's not an angry gaze. We are not sinners in the hands of an angry God. That's a powerful statement that was expressed in a sermon by Jonathan Edwards in the 18th century, a Puritan. We are sinners in the hands of an angry God, as though God were holding us and crushing us. It's very discouraging to think that we are sinners in the hands of an angry God. We are sinners, yes. And we must readily say now, sincerely before God, Lord, I am a sinner. But you have not grabbed me and crushed me. He has a plan. He is watching you. And his gaze is a gaze of love. He does not look upon us as you might be looked upon by one of those hidden cameras in the street. Everywhere now there are, there are cameras filming everything we do. And when we're going down the street we know, oh, there's another camera, there's another camera, there's another camera. You know, constantly, we, you know, they would know, uh, you know, 90% of your day what you're doing. <laughs> And uh, that's why they have so many YouTube videos uh, where people are, I don't know, robbers are doing things and the cameras are filming them and dogs attack them and who knows what, you know. But the gaze of those cameras is not a loving gaze. It's, I caught you, gaze. I'm going to put you on YouTube. Yet nevertheless, when Adam is hiding, he feels Ashamed, he knows he is naked, because before that, before that, before sin, before he committed that clear disobedience as Eve did, he was quite happy. He was good, and indeed, Adam and Eve could see each other in the splendor of God's glory. They did not feel ashamed. There was no lust, no lustful desires. In fact, they felt quite in harmony with creation, with God, and with each other. 
But then that's why they put these fig leaves because they wanted a kind of they wanted to kind of reconstitute that sense of peace that they had when they were looking at each other before. But now, after sin, shame enters, there's this awkwardness, there's no longer a harmony between them, concupiscence enters. You know what concupiscence? You know, it's when you desire the other for sensual gain or sensual interest. With original sin, it's really the beginning of sensuality in all its forms. And uh, that friendship with God suddenly falls apart and he no longer wants to be man that is, no longer wants to be in God's presence as though God would not know him if he were hidden somewhere. And Adam is afraid, Eve is afraid. And we cannot think that we can live our lives as though God were not knowing where we are. Like if we could live in such a way, kind of hidden from God. God is all-seeing. He's all-knowing. He always knows where we are. We cannot be like Adam and hide. And why were they hiding? Why were they hiding? Well, they both fear him whom they had formerly loved and lived in, in harmony with. Now they don't trust each other and they don't trust God. So it tells us that the first answer to the reality of evil in the world, and that is that it does not come from God. Evil and suffering are not brought about by God, but they are the direct result of freely rejecting God's mandate. It's as though our first parents, Adam and Eve, kind of, hacked the code of our happiness. They went, to, you know, God had, had done the best software, the best computer program for our happiness, and they went in there and they, they hacked it. I don't know how to hack, I don't know how they do that, they put numbers in or whatever they do, right? And always behind any unhappiness, any sadness, any anxiety, always there is some form of, in its origin, at least, original sin, of course, and then personal sin. How does the Catechism describe sin? Sin, it says, is an offense against God. Sin sets itself against God's love for us and turns our hearts away from it. Like the first sin, it is disobedience, a revolt against God, through the will to become, quote, like gods, knowing and determining good and evil. We know how crazy it is to determine good and evil, as though we could decide, well, I think that's good, then it'll be good. If I think that's evil, then I'll decide it'll be evil. It's evil. When Adam and Eve did that, they rejected God's authority, and they chose to sever their relationship with God, and thereby they lost all those blessings that that our Lord was going to shower them with. So as we do our prayer now, we realize that we are sinners and that in some way we are implicated in Adam's sin. But we are also implicated in the universality of Christ's salvation. Yes, we are implicated in Adam's sin. 
But Christ is the new Adam. As St. Paul says in his letter to the Romans, as one man's trespass led to a condemnation of all men, so one man's act of righteousness led to acquittal and life for all men. So we know, we have been acquitted by your mercy, Lord. We have been acquitted. You know, when I was in Rome, I studied a theologian. His name was Hugh of St. Victor from the 12th century. He was a predecessor to St. Thomas Aquinas. And he wrote a famous treatise called De Sacramentis. And he says that although original sin has left disastrous effects, even in his sinful state, man still, he says, retains a memory of God. We still retain a memory. And he says, this serves as a point of departure so that man can return to God and the path of this return is knowledge and virtue. Knowledge and virtue. That's how we return to God. As we remember that God has left, you could say, a trace of His mercy in our, in our mind, in our heart, in our reason. And we can tell the Lord now, I wanted to return to you. I must see what blocks me. I must root it out. St. Rosaria said, Otherwise the eyes of our soul grow dim, dull, dull. Reason proclaims itself sufficient to understand everything without the aid of God. This is a subtle temptation which hides behind the power of our intellect, giving our Father God to man, given by our Father God to man, so that he might know and love him freely. Seduced by this temptation, the human mind appoints itself the center of the universe, being thrilled with the prospect that you shall be like God. So maybe my, my eyes have grown dull and I can't really see clearly. The image of God is dulled. And that's why we have to read the Gospel. We have to get a clear image of Jesus or we can read the, the accounts of the life of Jesus. That's why our, our founder, St. Josemaria, used to speak about the the gravity of sin, which is that of forgetting that we are even sinners. Forgetting that we are sinners. Never thinking about that fact. Never caring or kind of like being unaware of the fact that we are sinners. You know, saints were often given a great light, a grace to be aware of their sins. But also, of course, to become aware of, of God's mercy. This is what happened to St. Teresa of Avila when she was only 16 years old. Her father sent her to a convent in Avila, the convent of the Incarnation in Avila. And it was a large convent, not particularly strict, lots of nuns there. And she said, okay, well, I'm going to start. And she started off with um, fervor. But after some years there, kind of routine set in, it was just the ordinary routine and it was kind of like humdrum, right? And it was at the age of 40, which is like way older than all of you here, but at the age of 40, 
she had a dramatic conversion upon seeing a statue of Jesus during the Passion. It was somehow in a, in a chapel somewhere and had been placed there momentarily and it showed Jesus in great agony. And she suddenly, she suddenly realized that, that she was in some way responsible for all that agony of Jesus. And she threw herself at the foot of that statue. And she asked the Lord right, to give her a sense, a deep sense of sin that she never wanted to offend him. And that's, it's from that moment on that her, that was like a turning point in her life. Her, her life completely changed. It was a dramatic conversion moment. After that, she started her own monasteries, you know, and convents rather. And she asked herself, why did I not make progress? What blocked me? And she, she said, it was my carelessness about sin. She didn't think about it. She said, I paid very little attention to venial sin. And that's what destroyed me. Sometimes she would blame priests who gave her bad advice. She said, what in reality was venial sin, they would tell me was no sin at all. And most grievous mortal sin was to them only venial sin. This did me such harm that it is not surprising if I speak of it here to warn others against so great an evil. But at the same time, she also admits that she was concerned about being well thought of, and at, some t at the same time, she would know instinctively what was really right and what was really wrong. And yet, she just too easily accepted bad advice. And so, you and I, we must think of that, that we will only really advance when we put the spotlight on sin. But also the spotlight on God's mercy, which we receive in confession, when we open our heart. This is what happened also to St. Augustine, one of the greatest minds of, the West, of Western culture. The, really one of the most, the greatest minds that Western culture has ever produced. He came also to a turning point in his life when, what? Did he realize some great theory, some great idea about God? No. He realized he was a sinner. And that he needed to convert and turn to God. And, and he was so sorry that he had not turned to God earlier. And that it took him so long to discover the mercy of God the goodness of God, and to turn away from sin. That's why one of the most famous lines, we say it in Latin, one of his famous lines that he said in his confessions, Sero te amavi pulcritudo tam antiquat et tam nova, sero te amavi. Probably don't catch that Latin, but it's beautiful. It's one of the most beautiful phrases ever written. Late have I loved you, O beauty ever ancient and ever new, late have I loved you. And behold, you were within me, and I, my eye was out of myself, and there I searched for you. Sedo te amavi means late have I loved you. Late have I loved you. And yet, 
the whole time, it was God's mercy that hovered over Teresa. It was God's mercy that hovered over Augustine. So let us, let us see how God's mercy indeed hovers over us. And let's try to identify the little uh, sins, venial sins, of course the mortal sins. Maybe we have a bit of a tendency towards laziness, the egotism, just to do always what we want. Gluttony. You know, they say gluttony is the forerunner to impurity. Maybe we just like to eat exactly what we want and, and uh, you know, not really offer any sort of mortifications. Or maybe we could identify the moments when we just lack heroism, self-control. Or just, just a tendency towards uh, laziness. The Lord is inviting us to go much further. And one way to do that, of course, is, is to is go further by identifying sin. And unless we do battle against sin, against egotism, against laziness, against sensuality, it is really hard to see how we can really win the prize of sanctity, the contest of sanctity. Let's ask for this. And of course, we give thanks to God that His mercy is shown to us in the sacrament of reconciliation, that we can always open our hearts and God is always waiting for us. This mercy of God, which cannot just be an adjunct, an addition to our life. And we go to Mary, who is that being full of grace. She's the model of what we human beings were intended to be, who are redeemed through God's saving power. She is the first sign of God's victory over sin, in Christ, the Blessed Virgin Mary. That's why we always say, pray for us sinners. Because she is the first one who has had that victory. She said, let it be done unto me according to your word. And God prepared her in such a way that she had no sin. She was immaculately conceived. It's beautiful. And we see her there in that painting. We see her immaculately conceived. Even though she had that child, that immaculate child, our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's ask her, and during this year of St. Joseph, ask St. Joseph as well, to identify your main areas of sin, your main areas of struggle, but also identify where you embrace God's mercy in the sacrament of reconciliation, and how enthusiastic you are for that beautiful sacrament. Our Blessed Mother will intercede for us and gain us that hope. I thank you, my God, for the good resolutions, affections, and inspirations you have communicated to me in this meditation. I ask you to put them into effect. My Immaculate Mother, St. Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede.